Well, uh, lots of people attend church uh, every, in Australia every, every week, but there are also quite a number of people who would attend church, who would call themselves Christians, but if you followed them around for the week, you'd barely see anything distinctively Christian in them at all. They look, they sound just like their neighbours. They don't read their Bible, they don't pray, there's not any meaningful connection with other Christians. The things they talk about, the things that excite them, have nothing to do with Jesus or the Kingdom. Their attitude to work and money and their worry about tomorrow, their lack of joy and hope, pretty much make them identical to the unbelievers all around them. Maybe that's you. What's the solution? How can we help people like that have a genuine spiritual life, something that makes them genuinely different from the the people around them, from their friends and neighbours? Perhaps what we need is to spend some time thinking about Jesus' words here. I am the true vine, you are the branches, remain in me and I will remain in you. You cannot bear fruit unless you remain in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. One writer says about these verses, if you've ever longed to understand the secret of spiritual growth, you'll find it in these words. So if I'm describing you, then listen up. Uh, First thing to notice there in verse 1 is that Jesus says he's the true vine, uh, which means he's comparing himself to another vine. And if we have read much of the Old Testament, we'll know he's thinking about Israel. Israel is described as a vine or a vineyard in lots of places in the Old Testament. Psalm 80 is a particularly good place. We're not going to have time to consider it all tonight, but Psalm 80 um, says these things, talking to God in a prayer. Uh, You, God, brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took root and filled the land. He's talking about God bringing Israel out of Egypt and and planting them in the promised land. Uh, But in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah describes what the crop that Israel produced was like. Uh, God looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. God was like a farmer who lovingly planted Israel and looked after it, and yet it just produced rubbish. A bit further down in Isaiah 5, it describes what that bad fruit was. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. He wanted a fruitful crop on his vine of justice and a society that was right, a society that would live out their faith and their obedience to God. But instead it just produced evil and violence and unfaithfulness. And so the story of the Old Testament is how God prunes Israel, his vine. He he disciplines them. He sends foreign armies to invade, to knock down walls, to rip up farms, to destroy houses. Also they'll return to him and bear the fruit that they were created for. And it's a cycle that's repeated again and again through the Old Testament. The people uh, sin, God sends a pruning, some foreign enemies. They plead for rescue, God rescues them, they're faithful and so on. It doesn't last. Again and again, God prunes them and again and again, Israel fails to produce the fruit that God wants. And so that's how the Old Testament finishes. God's vine, Israel, is withered and sick and dying 
They're a shadow of what God had planned for them. They're gasping for life. Until Jesus arrives and says in verse 1 of John 15, I am the true vine, my father is the gardener. What the Jews could never do, be God's fruitful vine, Jesus does perfectly. Jesus produces the fruit that God requires, a life perfectly aligned to his father, full of justice and mercy and goodness, loving as the father loves, always doing, saying and thinking what pleases him always bearing fruit. And this picture uh, that Jesus builds on in chapter 14 comes from what he said in... uh, In chapter 15, comes from what he said in chapter 14. Chapter 14, he's promised to send the Holy Spirit to be with the disciples, and then he introduces the idea of being in the disciples. And then in chapter 14, he talks about how they will be in Jesus and Jesus will be in them. And then he says that anyone who loves him will obey his teaching. And in these extraordinary verses in 14.23 of John, he says that the Father and the Son will come to him and make their home in him. Which is all a bit abstract and weird, that Jesus will be in them and they'll be in Jesus. Uh, And at the end of chapter 14, maybe the disciples are looking a little confused about what it's all about. And so into chapter 15, Jesus gives them a picture to help explain this idea of how Jesus can be in the disciples. And he uses this Old Testament picture of branches connected to a vine. Jesus himself is a true vine. He bears fruit, but that's only the beginning. God's plan has always been that his people will bear fruit, just like Jesus himself does, just like he wanted his Old Testament people to do. Straight after saying in verse 1 that Jesus himself is the true vine, he, he talks about branches that are in him, grafted into him. Verse 2, but then in verse 5 he he makes it clearer and he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And it's the same relational closeness from chapter 14 that Jesus has described about how he's going to be in the disciples, except now it's in picture form. And Jesus' point is is that if his followers want to be part of God's chosen vine, if if they want to produce the fruit of righteous living, they can't do it on their own. They can only do it if they're connected to the vine, to the rootstock, to him. It's the only way. To live a life that pleases God, it doesn't come simply by an act of your will, by turning over a new leaf, by trying harder, by studying for longer, by sticking to the rules more closely. You can't produce fruit like that. Israel had tried that for centuries and failed every time. Without Jesus, you can never be faithful enough or committed enough or good enough to produce the good fruit that God wants. You have to be connected to him. And if you're not, you're just a dead branch. Jesus is the source of the spiritual life and the spiritual strength that will give you genuine spiritual fruit. And that means you can produce fruit only when you're connected to him. Jesus says you can't do anything on your own. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now that's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? Just stop and think about that for a moment. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Without Jesus, you can do nothing of any use for God. You can't bear any fruit without Jesus. You can't love your family 
or do your job properly or read your Bible properly. You can't pray or serve without, uh, effectively without being connected to him. You can't keep your eyes pure, your tongue from speaking hurt and lies. You can't love your neighbour. You can't serve your spouse unless you're connected to Jesus. You can't drive your car Christianly. You can't answer that annoying workmate unless you're connected to Jesus. The cause of the kingdom in Australia would be a lot stronger if each Christian began every day with this prayer, Lord Jesus, apart from you, today I can do nothing. I need you today, I can't do anything without you. One thing Jesus is saying we need to bring to him at the start of every day our helplessness, our need, our childlike dependence. We need to come to him every morning with empty pockets. When we understand that, that should make us pray, shouldn't it? We should come to him in prayer if we know that apart from him we can do nothing. That sort of truth should transform your prayer life because everything becomes a matter of prayer. But if that's true then it means we're not even capable of remaining in Christ on our own. If we can't do anything on our own, it means we can't remain in Christ on our own. Uh, So do you see what Jesus combines uh, with that command? He gives us a promise. He says, remain in me. That's the command, but then the promise. Verse 4, I will remain in you. He'll keep hold of those who belong to him. To those who do their part... To remain in him, he will hold on to them. He'll cause his life to flow through those people, like a vine and a branch. That's a great promise about how it doesn't depend all on us. And so as well as that first prayer, Lord, apart from you, today I can do nothing, we can add to a daily prayer, uh, remain in me. Uh, Help me to remain in you today. But what's that mean practically for us to remain in Jesus? Surely it comes all down to that, doesn't it? If if remaining in Jesus is the key, how do we do that? Well, Jesus gives us some practical examples of what it means to remain in him in these few verses. And can I just say up front that there's no secret tool, you know, there's no secret here. There's no special technique that is going to give you an easy, secret, closer walk to Jesus. The things Jesus is saying are pretty much what we've been taught in Sunday school, since Sunday school. And the key to remaining in Jesus is to cause his words to remain in you. The key to remaining in Jesus is his words remaining in you. Have a look there in verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. Think about those disciples. They'd spent three years following Jesus around, listening to his stories, his sermons, enough words to last a lifetime. And now they would have the Holy Spirit to help them remember all those words. And they'd spend the rest of their life doing that, remembering them, reciting them, proclaiming them, eventually writing them down, causing Jesus' words to remain in other people. Because there's life in Jesus' words. Jesus' words bring life. And so we have Jesus' words today, 2,000 years later, the other side of the world, written down so we can read them, memorise them, recite them, meditate them, 
cause them to remain in us. All those things, talking, reciting, explaining, singing, uh, help them, help his words to remain in us. Now, it's not easy for that, to do that, for his words to remain in us, but it's not that complicated either, is it? It doesn't take a huge brain power to be letting Jesus' words remain in you, but, but you will need to use your brain. It doesn't take physical strength, but it's going to take a bit of willpower. You don't have to do it for hours every day, but it is good to do it every day. To remain in Jesus means that his words remain in you. We want to do our part to maximise our exposure to his words, to increase our chance of being infected by them, dare I say it, so that we'll be infused and stained and contaminated by Jesus' words. We actually want, his, want to be contaminated by them, don't we? We want to be, as someone once said of John Bunyan, that if we're cut, we'll bleed Bible. That's what we want. If we're cut, to bleed Bible. And when we do, when God's words are remaining in us, then the things that we pray about will reflect Jesus' words. Our prayers will be bearing the fruit of that. And we'll begin to pray the things that Jesus loves to give us. And that's the promise in verse 7. Step one, Jesus' words remaining in you. Uh, but that's not enough, is it? We can't just know the words, we have to obey them. It doesn't say much about your relationship with someone if you listen to the words but don't do what they say. Mums will probably have told you that quite a lot. It's not enough just to hear the words I'm saying, you've got to do what I say. That shows that you love me. Verse 10, Jesus says something similar. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. Jesus remains in his Father's love by obeying his Father's words. It's the concept of a relationship, to hear and to do. And we do the same. We show our connection to Jesus by doing what he says. And underneath this, there's probably the idea of God's Old Testament covenants. God promises Israel that he'll be their God and that they'll be his people. And then they show that. They have covenant responsibilities by obeying certain things that God says to do. They remain in the covenant relationship by doing what is required of the covenant. Those sorts of things are the fruit that God looks for in his vine. Faithfulness and justice and mercy. So that's sort of the Old Testament background of uh, keeping or, or obeying the words of Jesus, of God. And it, it's the same here with Jesus. When his words remain in us and then when we obey them, we fulfil our covenant obligation, we remain in his love. We remain in a relationship with him. And the fruit we produce is obedience. Old Testament, New Testament, lots is uh, similar, but there are a couple of differences, a, a couple of advantages that we have from the Old Testament. Firstly, Jesus describes a new level of intimacy in our relationship. Look there in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. It's one of the few places in the Bible where this idea of friendship with Jesus is described. Jesus lays down his life for us, he calls us friends. 
Yes, he's saviour and Lord and King, and we should never trivialise our relationship with Jesus. But here Jesus invites us to call him friend. It's extraordinary. It's a new level of intimacy that comes not just from Jesus' love and his sacrifice on our behalf, but also because he's communicated with us. To see there in verse 15, I no longer call you servants. Servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I learned from the Father, I've made known to you. Compared to Old Testament saints, Jesus' disciples, and now us, know far more about God and his plans because we can see them in Jesus. We can hear them in his words. And so we're friends who know all that the, uh, the Father's revealed to Jesus. There's a second difference, a second way we have an advantage over the Old Testament saints. Uh, we're connected to Jesus. Like branches in a vine, we've got his power to produce fruit. He's already said in verse uh, 4, you can't bear fruit unless you remain in me. But now down in verse 16, he said, I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last or abide. We can't, uh, we actually can bear fruit. Uh, fruit that will last in a way that Israel never could. God had promised, God had looked forward to this day uh, in, uh, for centuries. Ezekiel 36, he, he looks forward to the day when his people would be able to do what he commanded. Ezekiel 36, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh, I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God looked forward to it hundreds of years before, but now Jesus is making it happen for those who are joined to him. We receive a new heart that wants to please God. We receive his spirit so that we've got the strength to obey Jesus. Our nature's been changed. We can produce fruit that lasts. Fruit with eternal consequences. Faithful, generous, gentle, humble, obedient words and actions. That's the fruit we're producing. Look at how verse 8 explains the effect of that fruit. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Obedient lives that imitate Jesus bring glory to God. They cause people to recognise how glorious God is. That's what you're doing when you follow Jesus, when you bear fruit. You're pointing people to God. But there's one other surprising aspect of this fruit. <clears throat> it's not just obedience that will produce fruit that lasts, that will bring glory to God, but it actually produces joy in us. Did you notice verse 10? If you obey my commands, you remain in my love. Verse 11... I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. What causes joy for the Christian? Obeying Jesus' commands. Now that's surprising, isn't it? That's back to front, to, the what, to what the world says. The world says, I don't want to become a Christian, I want to keep having fun. Fun comes when you break rules, not keep them. Fun means doing what I want, not what someone else wants. 
Uh, do you remember the Atheist Society in London? They put these advertising signs on buses a few years ago that said, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. In other words, if, if you serve God, you're doing the opposite of joy. They thought, do your own thing, that's the way to be fulfilled and happy. But here Jesus is saying, ultimate joy comes when you obey me, living the way you were designed. There's a rich satisfaction in serving others rather than pursuing pleasure for yourself. Joy lasts. Pleasure doesn't. It doesn't satisfy because it wasn't designed to satisfy. Now, that doesn't mean that life as a Christian uh, is going to be a bundle of laughs all the time. Jesus is not saying, follow me and everything will be perfect. Because God wants more than your happiness. Uh, He wants your fruitfulness. Joy comes in fruitfulness. And that brings us back to the idea of pruning. Uh, Jesus talks about pruning as part of his metaphor in verse 2. Pruning is God's loving discipline on his children to grow them in maturity so that they'll produce more fruit. So if you want to bear more fruit, if you want to be more joyful... You need to be ready for pruning. Don't be surprised if you pray to be fruitful or for joy if tough times come. Don't be surprised if the heavenly gardener takes his clippers to you and trims you into shape. Hebrews 12 puts it like this, verse 5, Hebrews 12, verse 5. My son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. Endure hardship as discipline. God God is treating you as sons. It may not be fun. Discipline never is fun. But there's joy because you know you're loved. You're valued. A bit further on in verse uh, 10 of Hebrews 12, we see what is the result of that pruning. God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Pruning produces holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. There's that fruit uh, plant metaphor again. A harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by discipline. If you're serious about being a fruitful Christian, if you, if you ever pray for it, you, you can expect pruning. Don't be surprised. Let me make one final point. Beware of not bearing fruit. Beware of not bearing fruit. If you are not bearing fruit, uh, that shows you're not connected to the vine. It shows you're not connected to the vine. You might look like a branch. You may hang around with branches. But if you're not bearing the fruit of being connected to Jesus, then Jesus has got a warning for you. He's got a warning of what the heavenly gardener will do. There in verse 2, he cuts off branches that don't bear fruit. Down in verse 6, if anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. That's judgment language. I pray that will be none of you. But experience tells me that in nearly every group of people sitting in church, there will be some who, who down the track won't cling on to Jesus. They won't bear the fruit of obedience and faithfulness. 
they won't cause Jesus' words to remain in them. And Jesus warns us that God's just punishment for that is judgment. So let's keep meeting together. Let's keep encouraging each other to keep persevering, to keep clinging to Jesus, to keep having his words remain in us and that we remain in his love as we obey him. And when we do that, he promises that he will remain in us because that's where true life and joy is found. It's only found in him. It's found nowhere else. May that be us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, you would help us uh, to remain in Jesus. Uh, Help his words to remain in us. Help us uh, to remain in his love by obeying his words. Uh, We thank you for the promises, for the warnings uh, that all encourage us uh, to remain in Jesus. We pray that more and more we might know know what it means uh, to walk with Jesus, to know uh, his power at work in us as uh, his spirit guides and keeps and holds and uh, helps us as we follow him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.